You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Lit class, the podcast that will go gently into that good night, actually, because a nap sounds amazing right now. I'm Megan. I'm Captain Nappies. RJ. Yeah. I'm RJ. Are you the captain of naps or nappies? Both. Because aren't nappies like little, is that like the British word for... Well, when I take a nap, I gotta wear a nappy. You gotta wear nappies? Yeah. No accidents. <laughs> the no-go zone. <laughs> All right. I'm old. Uh, yep, yeah, it's true. RJ is old and he must take precautions. We're off to a fantastic start, as always, here on Oh No Lit Class. Today we are going to be talking about Flowers for Algernon. So we're kind of doing a back to back the mentally handicapped protagonist, and also there are mice. But hey, you know, that is the will of our patrons. Yes, the supporters of our Patreon. Hey, Meg. Yeah. When you do this list, how about you read it as if you were a 1920s paperboy trying to sell some tapes? <laughs> why don't you just say, hey, Meg, why don't we steal a bit from sports with Katie Nolan? I don't know what a new... What extra, a, extra. Oh. Extra, extra. Tanner, Jen, Lucas, Karen, and Janet help donate to the Patreon to keep Ono Lit Class going. Get it here. <laughs> read all about it. Read all about Melina, Ariel, Alexander, <laughs> Ben at KNSJM, Chris at Play Comics, Not A Low Podcast at Not A Low Pod. I don't know where this voice is going, but now I'm talking about Dirk at Killing You Guy. Fish for sale. Read all about it. The Twitter handles that I say are the ones with either people have asked me to or like they talk to us on Twitter a lot so I know like what their Twitter handle is. If I'm just reading your name and you want me to read a Twitter handle, another social media thing, tell me and, and then I'll fix it. So if you would like to have your name lovingly read out in a stupid voice, because apparently that's the thing we're doing now, pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash class. And not only do you get to vote on the episodes we do, you'll also get stickers, posters, t-shirts, and the knowledge that you are better than everyone else. Next week, me, Shaquille O'Neal. Nope. That's, that's I not will read out the names. Kazam! So yeah, we're doing, um, we're doing Flowers for Algernon. So, I don't know how, to what degree Flowers for Algernon is still assigned currently i do wonder about that i don't know if i want to talk about it now or later so i'm fairly confident after refreshing my memory about all this that in middle school i think they had us read the short story and showed us the movie based on the novel and i remember thinking watching the movie what is this this doesn't happen and the only reason why that would be is they didn't have us read the novel they had us read the short story right although to be fair because I, too, in middle school, we, we read, I know we read the novel, but uh, we also watched the movie. And I still thought that the movie was bonkers. And we're going to get to why the movie's bonkers, too. But yeah, man. So uh, I read it in eighth grade. And M Megan, at the, the tender age of 13, just did not know what the fuck to do with flowers for Algernon. I was utterly bewildered by it. And and now at the, the tender age of 28, we'll get there. But the two biggest takeaways that I got through rereading and doing research uh, was that I didn't realize how horny people were for flowers for Algernon. Just because my very limited experience with it was like, what is this? But people from the original short story to like the film adaptation like at that time you know usually we talk a lot about writers seeing you know some level of success or no level of success and then it's only later like no people were bonkers for Algernon it's like Billy Jack <laughs> you want to elaborate on that also I don't think anyone knows what Billy Jack is Billy Jack was a big deal he was on SNL what <laughs> 
<laughs> Billy Jack. Like the actor. Yeah, the actor in characters. Yes. Billy? Okay. Oh, he Megan. He's still in character. He still hasn't dropped That's it. That's true. He's living in character. Uh, it's a 1970s kung fu Native American movie. Then there's hippies and really weird random improv sketch hippie interludes. Also, the man playing Billy Jack is neither Asian nor Native American. This is correct. <laughs> so he got no business doing doing either of those things. All right, we're in the it's weeds. like three hours long. Yeah, we are. We're in the. You put us in the weeds with <laughs> fucking Billy Jack. God. All right. Everyone should know Billy Jack. Where's that poster? Yeah, where is that poster that you made me buy you of Billy Jack that you never put up on our walls? We got to. <laughs> Monster. All right. Let's grab the wheel of this careening fucking vehicle and get back on the road with you are what? And one tin soldier rides away. Yep, that's how the song goes. You know, they they were a like goth rock band. Yes, I made you watch that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who told you you gotta watch this. They used to be a Satanist band and then they did the folk song. About how war is bad. Yeah, that's what it is about. Yeah. Go ahead, Go ahead hate, hate your neighbor. neighbor. Go, Go ahead, hate your friend. No. Or cheat a friend. Do it in, in the, the name, name of heaven. heaven. You can justify it in the end. Hamilton, Hamilton. <laughs> always with the writing, 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 writing. See, someone on Twitter talked about that they're going through the backlog of our episodes and they were threatening to make a super cut of all the times we do this. All right, so let's get to it. Yeah, oh yeah, let's see. What are we doing today? Oh yeah, we're doing flowers for goddamn Algernon. Please tell me about Daniel Keyes, because I don't know anything about him. All right, Daniel Keyes. I know about three things about him, and that's what we're going to talk about today, because there isn't a lot to know about Daniel Keyes. All right, Daniel Keyes, born August 9th, 1927, died June 15th, 2014. That's right. This is a man who lacks a middle name. He lacks a middle initial. His parents were straight and to the point simplicity his parents also did him another solid unlike most other oh no lick class alums his dad wasn't named daniel correct but <laughs> more importantly he never had to take that venture to new york city oh he was just born there he was born there convenient very convenient i think this is back-to-back weeks now no uh was no someone... no steinbeck was uh Steinbe- yeah steinbeck had to travel to oh, new york you're right so oh danny boy's parents made sure he never had to take that post-college voyage to New York City because he popped out into the world right in the middle of Times Square. As does the fashion at the time. Or at least by it. Oh, Danny boy. The pipes, the pipes. Oh, See, I don't know how the song goes. I was going to look it up, but I think it's better that I don't. <laughs> in my mind, I want to do <laughs> Sweet Caroline. Oh, Oh, shit. Danny boy. Pop, pop, pop. But I know it's not no, that tune, but I purposely didn't close. look it up. But oh, Danny boy. Uh, so he pipes, was... pipes, pipes, pipes. Yeah, laying the pipes, all right. He was born into a nice middle-class New York Jewish family. There is no word if they had any of that kosher cheese. They could have bought some could from, have bought from some. Mr. Salinger. Which I'm led to believe was the thing to sell at the time, you see. Now, here's the thing. There isn't a lot of information out there about old Danny boy. There were no biographies about him. He never wrote an autobiography, and even though he had a webpage about himself, which hosts a very saucy photo of him looking very delicious. What? What? Yeah, look at I that. only saw the bad Look at that oh. saucy, delicious boy. Right, Megan? <laughs> I mean, he's certainly squinting in a particularly saucy way. So aside from this very saucy and delicious photo of Daniel I Keyes on I guess if you want to look up Daniel Keyes' site and see a picture of him squinting, in what I presume is a saucy and delicious manner. The only other thing really on this website of his is about 700 words about himself. And most of those words are just listing the awards he won. For specifically Flowers for Algernon, I imagine? More or less. Okay. Because, yeah, Homeboy uh, rested on some laurels, but we'll get to that. But, Megan, look at that saucy boy. Oh, pl- yes, I've seen the saucy boy. Are your bits tingling? No. Mine have already exploded. So here's what I know about O'Danny Boy. The pipes, the pipes. One, he had remarkable fashion sense. So there's there's a lot of visual components to this audio medium we're crafting right I now. I said it's an AV episode. Let me describe to you what I'm looking at. A man wearing Coke bottle glasses in a white turtleneck 
with a long chain necklace on top of the shirt, while wearing a vest that looks to be made of some sort of wool or yarn that features what can be best described as a design influenced by Joseph's multicolored coat. Hashtag fashion. Such a dazzling coat of many colors. It did. How he loved his coat. It's in black and white. Of many colors. The picture's in black and white. Such a stunning coat. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It's in black and white. Of many colors. Oh my god. If you don't have a lot on Daniel Keyes, that's okay. So, aside from him being too hot to trot, and having the fashion sense of a long-dead Israelite, (laughs) old Danny Boy was brought up modestly. He went to the local schools in New York, and at 17, he enrolled at NYU. He was only there for a semester or so before he pulled out of school and joined the U.S. Marine Time Services. As it was, 1944, and that pesky World War II thing we keep hearing about. God, it's like it never goes away. Yep, it was going on again. Now, Danny Boy was a purser on oil tankers. Perhaps not the most glamorous of jobs, but it generally kept him out of danger. What is a purser? Basically... Like a manager kind of on top of the oil tanker. He was in everybody's business. Kind of just managing. They call them oil tanker pursers. (laughs) I looked it up. It's a weird name. It is. But it's just kind of like... It seems more like he'd be in charge of like the boat's treasury. (laughs) Yeah. No, like everyone's a purser. There's like the assistant purser and this purser, that purser. There's all pursers. Huh. So he's kind of just like the assistant to the manager kind of guy. All right. Naval terminology with RJ. (laughs) You know, but it kept him out of danger as it's not reported that he actually ever saw any combat, but rather was in more of a supporting role. Truth be told, any little bit helped, and all the safer, the better in my estimation, especially for a 17-year-old. Yeah, actually, actually, yeah, good point, Jesus. Also, 17-year-old is like the the manager overseer on a boat? Oh, man, they uh, all hands on deck here. I suppose. Quite literally. <laughs> After World War II ended, Danny Boy returned to New York, enrolled at Brooklyn College, and graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology. This might explain a few things. Hmm. He was 23. Upon graduation, Keyes landed a job in a magazine company with the name Magazine Management. <laughs> was it a magazine about the management of magazines? And that bit of unenlightened and uncreative naming brings us to this week's Financing with RJ. Of course it does. Yay! Did you just, did you just try to like background audience your own bit with, with just yourself? So you got a business or a product or a podcast and you want to make it profitable. Well, it all starts off with a good name. Also give up. Just stop trying. Why are you doing that? After all, that is the thing that is outward facing. It's the way people will get to know you. Sure, alliteration is good and all, like magazine management. But using vague terms like magazine and management and combining them together, that doesn't really add anything. No pizzazz. No style. Magazine management. Monster magazines. Matronly men monthly magazine. Oh no, lit class. (laughs) All of those are hot names. It's true. Fire. Eggplants. Real winners. Watch out. The other risk you run is if you don't make a very unique name, well, you might lose your trademark down the line. For example, Zipper. Zipper is a company name. The actual thing is called a clasp locker, a fly, or a zip fastener. But that name has fallen into common use. Kleenex and post-its, maybe next. Isn't that like band-aids and chapstick? Yep. I don't want the same thing to happen to any of you. So come up with a good and creative name for your own podcast. Something eye-catching, something memorable. Don't name it podcast, I guess. Podcast management. Podcast, podcast. (laughs) Name it something evocative. And that's all the time we have on this week's installment of Financing with RJ, a subsidiary of RJ Money Making Corporation. Ta! Um, are you gonna inform me the next time you uh, try to get us incorporated? We're not incorporated, I'm incorporated. How many businesses are you starting without my knowledge? Or consent? You don't need to know. Why would you need to know? They're my business, it's my name. Oh boy. My character. I'm not a character, I'm a real person. Or are you... So, back to magazine management and old Danny Boy and the job he landed there. Since the name doesn't really give much away, I'll help you out a bit. Magazine management focused on publishing pulp magazines. So it was about the management of magazines. I guess. So it was accurate. Not really. They published magazines. I don't understand the management part. Within a year or two of working at the company, Danny found himself as the editor of Marvel Science Stories. 
At the same time, Danny began writing stories for the company's Atlas Comics, which was edited at the time by some guy named Stan Lee. Never heard of him. No relation to Bruce Lee. (laughs) Eventually, Atlas Comics became what we know today as Marvel Comics. Yeah, that Marvel. No, nope, that other Marvel. You're wrong. You're thinking of the wrong one. It's a different Marvel. Yeah, you're right. It's (laughs) Marvel. And so for the next decade, Danny cut his literary teeth by working in the comic business. I think that's the first on Ono like class. Yeah. No, I don't think we've had anybody who who started off writing comics, so that's cool. So during that time, he worked on a number of projects. One project that was not published at the time, however, was called Brainstorm. Brainstorm! So I have the original pitch, because the story was actually, uh, before it was a novel, it was a short story, and before it was a short story, it was a pitch to Stan Lee to be a comic. He wrote the original pitch for Brainstorm in a book that he wrote about how he wrote flowers for Algernon, because Daniel Keyes may have been a bit of a one-trick pony. No, no, he published multiple <laughs> books. We're going to get to this. Okay, fine. And the pitch was, in short, the first guy in the test to raise the IQ from a low normal 90 to genius level. He goes through the experience and then is thrown back to what he was. He is no brighter than he was before, but having had a sample of light, he can never be the same. The pathos of a man who knows what it is to be brilliant and to know that he can never again have the things that he tasted for the first time, including a brilliant, beautiful woman he fell in love with and with whom he can no longer have any contact. Brainstorm. Now, Keyes wrote about the idea, quote, something told me it should be more than a comic book script. Prophecy. After working on comics, he began to focus on his own writing and publishing. It was during this time that he published Flowers for Algernon, which was a success. However, publishing is a tough gig, and really no one could survive on that alone. In the early 1960s, Danny Boy became a college professor of creative writing at Wayne State University before moving over to Ohio University in 1966 at the age of 39. And basically, that's what he did for the remainder of his life. Not a bad gig if you could ride that into the sunset for like four decades. It's true. Now, like many good New Yorkers and Jews before him, Danny Boy eventually retired down in Florida, specifically in Boca Raton. You can always spot the retirees from the locals, because for some reason, all these transplants want to call Boca Raton instead of Boca Raton. It is weird. Yeah, a bunch of fucking weirdos. You could also tell because you know they never shut up about how New York is so much better and they wish they were in New York and New York has so much more culture and oh, I missed all these things about New York. But you're here, Gladys, so maybe give it a friggin' rest. Anyway, <laughs> oh, Danny boy passed away at the age of 86 due to complications of pneumonia. The end. <laughs> you're just falling apart today. <laughs> Alright, so originally Flower for Algernon was a science fiction short story written in 1959 and it won the Hugo Award in 1960 and that's that's a major sci-fi award and it's super weird to me to think of this as a science fiction uh, story and there's a lot more going on with like sci-fi things and things it won and stuff and we're going to talk about that after we talk about the plot, because I want you guys, if you're not familiar with the plot to Flowers for Algernon, to experience it. And then, you know, s- sit with me and marvel at... Or Marvel. Or Marvel. And how weird it is about, you know, just what it's in the sort of same category as with its contemporaries and stuff. It actually, I don't know if you noticed, it didn't... Well, it did win, but it co-won. It won with another yes. book that's much more sci-fi. Yes. And one of the things that the movie lost to... For the, uh, we'll guess we'll get to okay. it. Yeah, we'll get there. Because it's, it's, yeah, it's fucking strange. So Flash for Algernon is another one of those books. Like, like, like all great books or all great literature, it was frequently challenged. Mainly on the basis of like, how dare children be given a book where the main character has sex thoughts. I know, they think 15 year olds haven't thought about sex. Can't imagine a character <laughs> who wants sex with somebody. Gotta hide this from kids. No, no, no. And plus, this wasn't just like maybe the usual candidates where we might think people would, you know, censor things. It was places like Calgary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Even in Calgary. Fucking Canadians are so polite. They go, ooh, oh Oh, no. Oh, he's thinking. Oh, he's thinking about Six. You think about six, guys. Oh, we can't I'm have so, this now with so the children, sorry. guys. Someone think of the children. We still can't do a Canadian accent. Oh, oh yeah. I don't even know what you're doing. I know I'm at least 
in the in the neighborhood you're in a di- oh, on a oh, different oh, continent oh that danny boy yeah hell yeah oh that danny boy the pipes the pipes the pipes he, now you don't I'm talk the... about the pipes with the children no 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 now you're doing like a weird pseudo irish we have to stop this because it's just getting worse let's get to the book let's talk about the book man because it's wild like i said and i crazy xxx <laughs> yeah <laughs> order now whatever happened to those tv commercials the internet the internet happened and nobody needs to fucking order video cassettes <laughs> they can do that on the internet now well what's this book about i could order 1-800 flowers to drop off fucking flowers on the goddamn rat's grave wow that's really fucking cold um how about i tell this, how about i talk about the book maybe? take that algernon <laughs> take take that you dead mouse but yeah reading this as a 13 year old you know i don't want to sound like whatever but a lot of it went over my head um, uh, as a five foot three person, all it still goes over your head. Do doom, I'm, I'm surprised uh, you're able to reach that symbol up there. Yeah, you know, I'm on a step ladder. On this episode of Pod Pals, you're probably like, "Hey, what? Why is this here? Doesn't this normally go at the end of the show?" And yes, it does, but. Like, really, it makes more sense as a break in the middle. After the author and, you know, before the book. And now you also might be thinking, Hey, Megan, did it seriously take you guys, like, 35 episodes to figure that out? And the answer is yes. Like, we're really dumb, you guys. But you know who's not really dumb? Olivia James, who I got to meet on an episode of Is This Adulting that I was back on she is really cool she has a big old octopus tattoo she talked about autism and she is the host of the super serious super saiyan social serious just the super serious social she does a cool podcast that that she co-hosts i'm here she's gonna tell you about it Hi, I'm Brienne. I'm Courtney. And I'm Olivia. And together we make up Super Serious Social Justice. We get together each week to talk about a very serious topic. No, really. We've talked about police shootings, politics, mental illness, disability, race, gender, marriage, kids, pretty much everything. I mean, and also farts. There is a lot of farting. And belching. What we're saying is that we're like you. We're normal people who want to be kind, but also be able to joke about bodily functions. So we've created this podcast to make tough topics accessible and fun. And we even stuck some cat pictures on our website to lure you in. So join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Super Serious Social Justice. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all your podcasting apps or at sssjcast.com. So here it is, the flowers as their Algernon. The story is told through progress reports written by the protagonist, Charlie Gordon, starting just before he starts an experimental procedure to make him smarter and throughout the course of the story. So Charlie's first progress reports are short, choppy, and full of spelling errors, as he relates that he is a 32-year-old developmentally disabled man who we are told has an IQ of 68. I'm going to go on a rant about the IQ test in just a minute, so hang in there. Um, And he does little menial jobs at a place called Donner's Bakery. Charlie really wants to be smarter, to be better in his mind, um, so he's attending special ed classes at the Beekman Center for Retarded Adults. Attending classes under the, the tutelage of Miss Kinian, a teacher who's been advocating for Charlie to be selected for a groundbreaking experiment in boosting his IQ to genius levels and, like, okay, so today we know that the IQ test is bullshit, right? Like, it, okay. is, it is essentially meaningless. It, it basically just measures someone's ability to take a fucking IQ test. So and doesn't every test just test somebody on their ability to take that test? Well, most standardized tests we have are bullshit. And actually, much like the IQ test, uh, most standardized tests in their heyday were mainly used as seg- segregator- segregatory, se- segregational, segregational, maybe, tool of eugenics as a means of justifying the sterilization of anyone considered an undesirable. You give them the IQ test, oh, they scored a low IQ, we can't have them breeding. Let's forcibly sterilize them against their will. You could read between the lines on who the people would want to sterilize. But whatever, it's, it's 1950-60-some-odd, the fucking Civil Rights Act hasn't even been passed yet. Anywho, these two lab coats, Dr. Strauss and Professor Niemer, 
are the brains behind this experiment. Neemer, Neemer. <laughs> what? Neemer, Neemer. He's like a little ambulance. <laughs> He's annoying, like, like that sound. So. <laughs> uh, they have instructed Charlie to keep this journal of progress reports for science and posterity. And Charlie, such. I'm Dr. Neemer, Neemer. See, no, that's too cute a voice because he ends up being a, a huge prick. Charlie. Oh, God. It's me. No, that's... Dr. that's Neymar. <laughs> that's how you pronounce it. Yep. Neymar. So, Charlie recounts being given a Rorschach test, a Rorschach inkblot test, and feels like he failed it or it was some kind of trick that he didn't get because all he's able to see is spilled ink on the page. And oh, hey, guess what's also a now discredited practice that's functionally useless in terms of diagnosing anything other than the ability to see cows high-fiving each other. The Rorschach test? Yes. Rorschach? Rorschach. 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 You're locked in here with me! (laughs) That's a real test right there. If you could break out, then you're good. The real test is how many Watchmen references you can make within a given episode. Looking into the future, living in the future and the past, I could tell you many. Mm. This episode is on the backs of millions of Watchmen memes. This show is on the back of millions of Watchmen memes. Megan, sometimes you sound like you're going to be the smartest guy on the Tinder. Cinder? Cinder. Or the Tinder. The smartest guy (laughs) on the Tinder. Holy shit. Moving on. So Charlie is super eager to undergo the procedure, and the scientists are too, as they want to move on from animal testing, specifically our title character, a mouse named Algernon. And gets... Man is an animal. Oh. It's the most dangerous game. Oh, we're going to talk about how man is an animal. Don't worry about that. Uh, and they want to get some sweet, sweet human data. The problem. Charlie is apparently deemed not mentally capable enough to consent, so they have to get permission from a family member. This makes no sense to me. Is Charlie mentally disabled? Yes, but he's living on his own, he's holding down a job, he's attending classes. Like, how is it that they need permission from someone else? Because he's incompetent. But clearly he's not incompetent. He's able to live on his own and work and go to, like, night school. I don't think that's how they could necessarily (laughs) judge incompetency. No, that just doesn't make sense to me. But the biggest problem with this is the fact that Charlie has completely lost touch with his family and isn't even sure they're still alive. In the meantime, they have Charlie play maze puzzle games against Algernon, and the mouse kicks his ass every single time. Mouse trap. Yes, like that. <laughs> Finally, they manage to track down Charlie's long-lost sister, Norma, whose response is basically like, What? Charlie's still alive? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure. Do the thing. I don't give a fuck. So it's full speed ahead. And uh, Charlie writes in his progress report a very simple sentence that you can kind of come down on either side of. And that is, um... I just want to be smart like other people so I can have lots of friends who like me. Full of misspellings for maximum endearment points. So, like, this can be seen as heartbreaking because this dude just wants to belong and he sees being smarter as the way to make that happen and, well, we're going to see how that goes, but it could also just as easily to me come off as, like, overly cloying, like, kind of sappy in a harmful way. Look at this simple man who just wants friends. So pure and childlike i don't know he's gotta you can tell he's unintelligent because he thinks intelligent people have friends true enough you're gonna see more of this sort of dichotomy as we go along so uh i don't know follow along see where you land on this one your mileage may vary etc so charlie gets the surgery and wakes up feeling pretty much the same he wasn't sure what exactly to expect but he thought there would at least be like some difference while Charlie may feel that way, the reader gets to already start seeing small changes in like his progress reports. Fewer misspellings, longer sentences, stuff like that, which is kind of what makes it such a neat device. A nurse named Hilda takes time out of her busy nurse schedule to tell Charlie that God didn't make Charlie smart, and so he and the scientists are tampering with God's will. So that's nice. In the meantime, Charlie continues losing at the maze game to Mighty Mouse and is getting frustrated, but everything is about to change (laughs) yes he begins to notice that his co-workers at the bakery who he's always been certain are his best buddies are actually making fun of him but he doesn't quite get why whenever someone fucks up at the bakery they call it pulling a charlie gordon because they're not only assholes they're not particularly original assholes either charlie asked mr donner if he could be promoted to an apprentice baker to try and prove himself but the man just straight laughs at him in his face because he is also an asshole 
In the meantime, Niemer and Strauss give Charlie a, quote, television-like device that is supposed to stimulate his unconscious mind to continue making him smarter. What it actually does is unlock some hitherto repressed memories about his, as we will find out, just astoundingly awful childhood. Just so bad. The first memory is his sister Norma laughing at him when he says he wants to be an artist. This is the lowest tier of, like, this is the least worst of what we're going to encounter in Charlie's memories. He goes to a Halloween party with some guys from the bakery and they make him dance around like an idiot and make fun of him and then ditch him because they're bastards. But now things really pick up. Charlie starts eating Robinson Crusoe. He finally beats Algernon in one of the maze games. He has a memory of being beaten by his mom when his sister was born because she thought he was trying to hurt the baby. Did he try to pet the baby? Holy shit. (laughs) His mom thought that he was going to pet the baby too hard like Lenny, but that wasn't the case. Like, he was just trying to pick the baby up so she would stop crying. And, uh, you know, he gets beat and he was also a child. But he fixes the dough mixer at work and he gets promoted. He gets promoted after all, and then he finishes Robinson Crusoe and immediately starts reading something new. He masters proper grammar and punctuation overnight. He hangs out with the bakery boys again, and they try to get him to dance with a girl so they can make fun of him, but now Charlie gets that they're a bunch of dickbags having a laugh at his expense, and so he leaves. And then he has a dream about the girl and wakes up and, I quote, wet and messy. Who hasn't that happened to? <laughs> Uh, according to people in, in Calgary, not impressionable teenage children. <laughs> Alright, let's have a very special, unscheduled <laughs> sex talk with RJ. Let's not do that. Can, can we please not? <laughs> Nocturnal emissions. They're natural. They, they are. The it, end. It's true. Kids. It gets better. You're gonna have sex thoughts about things. Your body's gonna do gross stuff and it's just gonna happen and you're gonna be like why and some people might try to tell you that it's bad and the they're dumb and wrong it's just it's just shit your body does it's just puberty man this very special episode of sexing with rj (laughs) is over (laughs) so charlie isn't just progressing intellectually but emotionally socially and yes sexually having his first wet dream Oh, Danny boy, those pipes, pipes, pipes. The pipes, pipes, pipes. And if hearing about a 30-something-year-old man's blossoming understanding of the angle of his dangle makes you feel kind of voyeuristic and deeply uncomfortable, well, A, I think that's kind of the point, maybe. And B, too bad, because there's plenty more where that came from. And actually, Charlie isn't super comfortable with the idea of the professors Niemer and Strauss reading about his Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret stuff and decides to keep some of the reports secret just for himself. And us. Lucky us. Just like on Franck. Nope. <laughs> yeah, she did. Yes, I know, yes. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> masturbates, including on Franck. <laughs> I don't. Charlie modifies machines at the bakery to work better and gets another raise. He remembers pre-operation Charlie not being able to grasp how to bake rolls and is proud of himself. Except no one else at the job is proud of him. In fact, they're all super uncomfortable and avoid him because, you know, now they have to accept that he's a fucking human person and not someone they could just fuck with without any consequences. Gosh, they just, it must be so hard for them. But fuck them. Charlie's too busy chatting about Shakespeare with college professors and reliving horrible memories of his father trying to get his mother to accept his disability when he was six while she screams, he's normal, over and over again. And then she hits him when he gets scared and shits his pants. Parenting. What the hell? Like, holy shit. I don't rem- My baby brain just glossed right over this trauma shit. Out of it there. Also, Charlie overhears Niemer and Strauss arguing about whether to take their findings to a big science conference in Chicago, even though Charlie is still actively changing and the experiment isn't really, like, done. But Charlie doesn't have time to worry about that because he's planning on asking Miss Kinnian out to a movie. Except she's not Miss Kinnian anymore. No, now she's Alice. Is she still Alice? No one's going to get that joke. Although, unfortunately, that's also a story about mental regression, so that's a bummer. I remember. I'm not Alice yet. Uh, Glad you're not Alice. Alice. (laughs) Alice. Alice. You're the man now, Alice. So the date actually goes pretty well, and Charlie confesses that his newfound sex feelings have made him fall for Alice. Alice rejects him. 
Not because she isn't into this newer, smarter Charlie, but because she's worried about somehow compromising the integrity of the experiment. Or something. Charlie's frustrated at weird emotions that he doesn't know how to deal with, and he has a dream about when he realized his sister had different bits than him and seeing her period underwear, and you thought I was kidding with that Judy Bloom joke a little while back, but no, I wasn't. Is it me, God? It's Judy. <laughs> I said it. I said the title. Hey, Judy, it's me, God. Hey, Jude. I'm knocking at your hymen. You've got your period. I'm knocking at your... <laughs> knock, knock, knocking on your hymen. It was just... God. Oh, boy. <laughs> then, Charlie learns that one of the guys who works at the bakery is stealing money, and he agonizes over what to do about it. He asks Niemer and Strauss about it, and Strauss is like, come on, like you you got to tell your boss. Like You have a moral obligation. While Niemer's like... Nah, don't get involved. Besides, you're not actually accountable or anything. You were basically an inanimate object before the operation, and what the fuck, dude? I'm not paraphrasing. He says, he straight up says to Charlie's face that he was essentially an inanimate object. That's the word he uses. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, before you started climbing the old IQ ladder, you were basically like a desk lamp or a footstool. What the fuck? Charlie is understandably pissed off about this. In the end, he confronts the dude stealing shit and says he'll give him the chance to stop, but if he keeps doing it, Charlie will tell their boss and get him fired. The guy agrees to stop, and Charlie realizes that he can now fully comprehend moral choices and decisions, which I'm sure will definitely not serve to make life more confusing and upsetting. At this point, Charlie is so smart that the college professors he's been hanging out with can no longer keep up with him. And then Mr. Donner fires Charlie from the bakery, because everyone is just so uncomfortable about having to acknowledge smart Charlie because they're all bad people. Should have just let that asshole keep stealing, Charlie. F fuck him. But who cares about them? He's going to Alice's apartment, where things start getting... intimate. Wet and messy? In a way. Moist. <laughs> By intimate, I mean Alice and Charlie kiss... Charlie has a sudden visceral memory of his mom beating him for having a boner, and then he cries himself to sleep on Alice's bed. So, I mean, it's kind of wet and, and messy. Just overall, not the most ideal first kiss. Just, just, like, fuck me. Can Charlie just catch, like, one break? Like, how intensely do we need to hammer home the theme of man's hubris? Can Charlie just have a good day? Look, man, he wins the chocolate factory in the end. <laughs> You gotta earn it. I mean, I, I, I wish. You know, poor fucking Charlie Gordon. He deserves a chocolate factory. Charlie Bucket can can go fuck himself. Hey, he, he doesn't understand. He had to understand. sleep in a bed with his grandpa, his no. grandma, his no, mom, his dad. No, he didn't. No. That was just the grandparents who all four of them slept in the bed for some reason. He was not, Charlie was not in the bed with them. But yeah, no, can like Charlie just like have a good day? Maybe? No. Yeah. Yeah, no. Never. Not allowed. Instead of having a good day, he keeps having nightmares and hallucinations of his former self following him around. Had a bad day again. No, I'm not enabling this. Also, Niemer, in an effort to deal with his insecurity over the fact that Charlie is clearly smarter than him now, is treating him more and more like some kind of lab creature rather than a person. Speaking of feelings of intellectual insecurity... Alice doesn't want to hang out with Charlie anymore. She claims that he's become colder and more aggressive, but there's also the insinuation that she doesn't know how to handle him now that he's not her eager student, but someone who's much smarter than her. But now it's time for that science conference. Niemer, Strauss, Charlie, and Algernon head out to Chicago, and Charlie is still miserable and experiencing various traumatic flashbacks, and Niemer's still being a prick. The scientists treat Charlie like a freak show, and eventually Charlie snaps and runs off from the conference, taking Algernon with him because fuck Nemer. But it's okay, you know, they get a convertible, they get some pizza, they go to a Cubs game. <laughs> they, go to the, the they go to the Museum of Art and they hang out there for a while. Yeah, they look at uh, Impressionist art. Yeah, it's a good time. At one point, Charlie claims to be the Sausage King of Chicago. Ayo, hey, I'm the Sausage King. Of Chicago. That's how that sounds. I, I like that we're just imagining better, better, different stories for Charlie to inhabit at this point. <laughs> Instead, uh, Charlie begins a new life in New York, hiding from everyone involved in the experiment. During this time, he has sex with a hippie lady, tracks down his dad, who doesn't recognize Charlie or believe that he's actually his son. 
He also notices Algernon behaving weirdly, freaking out and hurling himself against the walls of his cage. I'm sure this isn't ominous foreshadowing. It's a goddamn mouse. Yeah, but it was a super intelligent mouse at one point. So one night, he's out having dinner somewhere, and he sees a mentally disabled busboy drop some dishes, and everyone laughs at him because people are literally the fucking worst, oh my god. And Charlie comes to his rescue and screams at everyone to not act like a pack of feral hyenas masquerading as human beings. Anyway, Algernon's behavior gets worse, and Charlie knows that this means soon he'll be experiencing the same. So he gives up and returns to Nemer and Strauss. They confirm that Algernon is in a pretty bad state. Charlie asks what'll happen if Algernon dies, and they're like, eh, throw him into the incinerator, whatever. And Charlie's like, uh, what happens if I die? And they're like, uh, probably not the incinerator? So, you know, that's comforting. Charlie puts all his time towards studying himself and Algernon in an effort to save them both from regressing. He writes a big fancy science paper about it, but all he manages to do is confirm that what goes up must come down. Like a dick. Like a dick, except it's his IQ, and basically he's fucked. Also, Algernon dies, but at least Charlie saves him from being fucking incinerated and buries him in the backyard. So he could get eaten by worms. What? I mean, he, barely, that's a, he buries him, he gives him a little grave, he puts he puts flowers on the thing, is the title of the book. Stop. The final thing he decides to do, while he still has his wits about him, is to go see his mom, aka the nightmare woman who is the source of all of his trauma. She is sort of delusional and just, like, not 100% there and also still a horrible human being who treats him terribly. So, glad we got that taken care of. Time well spent. Charlie continues to regress and is back down to Alice's level now, so she's okay with them having sex again. So that's something. Yeah, people really hate having sex with people smarter than them. Apparently, this Daniel Key seems to think so. But Charlie makes her leave because he doesn't want her to see him eventually go back to square one. Bit by bit, Charlie fades away until he's back to how he started. He goes back to the bakery, and they give him his job back now that he's safely dumb enough for them again. He also tries to go back to Alice's class, but she can't handle seeing him without breaking down. Charlie writes one final report, asking for someone to please put flowers on Algernon's grave. The end. Fuck! Jeez. Dang. So, yeah. I mean, with this in mind, it's no wonder that when he originally tried to sell the short story, and then also again when he was shopping it around as the novel, publishers wanted him to change the ending and make it so that Charlie gets to stay smart and marry Alice, and they live happily ever after. But happy endings are for schmucks. So Keyes just kept looking until he found publishers who would accept the story as it was. Really, really sad. So I think the one of the more interesting things about the novel is the narrative framing device. Because a lot of the things that we've read in terms of narrative framing devices are either things like, I'm writing this as a letter to my sister, or this is just a strange book of things I found, or Frankenstein, where, you know, it's like a turducken of, I'm telling you the story about a story someone told me about a story that someone told them. So this one's interesting because it's, you know, it creates another layer where we get to see Charlie's transformation. As the reports, you know, start out short and simple and the errors and then they get longer and more complex and then they regress back to how they were before. So it's not just Charlie telling the reader that he can feel himself changing, you can physically see it happening. And it adds to that that thing I mentioned before that you're kind of like a voyeur, like you're peeping on this dude's personal diary. So I think that's an interesting and cool element. I agree. One other book that I know I've read that's like that is Push by Sapphire. Which it's interesting to see them use that kind of device throughout. That that's like it's her diary that you're reading. And so you can see how the character changes over time by how she writes. It's cool. Before we get into like adaptations and stuff, now that we've kind of talked about the plot summary, let's talk about Flowers for Algernon as a science fiction book and short story. Because that's what it's considered, which is weird because it's not what I think of when I think of sci-fi, especially from that era, like... When I think of that sort of 50-60-ish kind of pulpy sci-fi, your Robert Heinleins, your Arthur C. Clarks, your James Tiptree Juniors, etc. is not really thinking of flowers for Algernon. So when it won the, uh, was it the Hugo that it co-won? 
the short story won, it won the a, award. Yeah, it won a Hugo Award. The novel didn't win anything. It like was the runner-up. Oh, I thought it won a Nebula. Or maybe it won the Nebula and lost a Hugo, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Because, it, yeah, it won a Hugo, and then the book won a Nebula. And these are the sci-fi book story prizes, which is just weird to me because it's like, I guess... It's science fiction in the sense that this sort of thing doesn't exist. You got like, you know, Starship Troopers shit happening. And this is in the same sign of genre with that. I don't know. It's yeah, just... but it is. I mean, it's science-based. It's just not, you know, it's not called space fiction. Science <laughs> doesn't have to happen in the outreaches of space or the depths of the sea. I s- suppose. It's, it's just, I guess. Like Gattaca is science fiction. Well, I feel like Gattaca's got more sci-fi elements than Flowers for Algernon. Why? I don't know. Just, it's, it's more... Because it's blood-based? And also just the aesthetic. The, uh, the movie adaptation lost the Hugo Award. It was nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. It lost it to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Just weird comparisons. (laughs) It is. They can't just be very different kinds of science fiction movies. It's like there's different kinds of comedies and dramas. This is fair. I'm yeah. not saying it's not science fiction. I'm just saying it's hugely different from what I have been given in, in classes and stuff. And as, you know, this is 1950s science fiction as we know it. Using uh, the Golden Globes as my sterling example for everything. Three billboards of outside of Ebby, Missouri was in the same category as The Greatest Showman as a musical and comedy. Same genre. What, three billboards wasn't put into the drama category? Wasn't it dark comedy? Is it how people were selling it? I don't remember. I know that Get Out was uh, under comedy because they yeah. didn't know what the fuck else to do with it because it was a horror movie. <laughs> oh, no, that works just as well. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, Get Get Out and The Greatest Showman. That's because of very poor labeling on the part of the Golden Globes because they, they're stupid. Well, science fiction as a term is nebulous. Oh, oh look at you uh, go. Yeah. All right, well, then let's, uh, let's switch over and start talking about adaptations. So there are a lot... There are the usual sort of things where it's adapted for the stage. There have been radio plays. There have been several different uh, Japanese adaptations, both um, as I think as a radio drama, a TV drama, and I think a stage one. Japanese were very into it. Uh, It was adapted into a stage musical in 1978, which seems like a weird thing to do, like, a musical of. Da-da-da. I'm smart now and everything sucks and now I'm not again. This has been a nightmare journey. Oh, but, you know, that'd be very dramatic. I'm imagining the last scene now. Please put flowers on Algernon's grave and, like, all the lights shut off except, like, the one spotlight on oh flowers on the little casket. Oh, my God. Well, and see, then that, like, final light goes out. <laughs> well, yeah, see, I can see that as a, as a stage play. Yes, I could see that as being, like, really <laughs> powerful. Musical is where it loses me. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ, superstar. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Superstar. Nailing John Legend to a plank of wood. That's all I know about Jesus Christ Superstar now. That's it. There is not, however, a Flowers for Algernon opera, unfortunately. Now, was there a big influx of people buying white mice, naming them Algernon? Not that I read. In fact, most adaptations cut Algernon from the title entirely. And usually just use the name Charlie instead. When it was adapted into a TV movie, it was called, like, The Two Worlds of Charlie Gordon. And when it was adapted into a movie in 1968, um, it was just called Charlie. So Algernon gets knocked off the title in, like, every other version of this story. It is a weird name. It is. He got it from a, a poet whose full name I did not bother to write down. Mm. But Algernon's in there. There you go. So before the book was actually published, there was a sort of TV movie-ish adaptation based off the short story in 1961, kind of like an hour-long episode of something that was called the United States Steel Hour that was just a a showcase for little one-hour dramas. And then in 1968, it was adapted into a full-length feature film that was just called Charlie. And the same guy who had played Charlie seven years ago on TV played Charlie in the movie. Uh, an actor named Cliff Robertson, who then won an Academy Award for Best Actor for the role. 
it was a very positively received movie. Like, people went nuts for it. We watched it in class, because of course we did, like we just said. And I, I've never rewatched it, and I kind of think I ought to, because, you know, I was reading just people raving at the time about how good it was. And I just, all I remember about it was that it was peak 1960s with just weird editing and like Austin Powers style interludes after he becomes smart that are just like music and like weird still pictures of Charlie looking like he's got crazy eyes and now the screen's pink for some reason to show his descent into like being too smart. Yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was that fucking like mod style biz. And that's all I remember from 15 years ago. <laughs> So maybe I ought to rewatch it. So initially when the novel came out, it actually received high praise, which makes sense. It won a number of awards. In particular, I did like what one critic remarked, quote, if this is a beginning, then what a beginning it is. And if it is the high point of a very short career, then what a career. Yeah, he took that one to heart. (laughs) Also, perhaps my favorite interpretation of this tale, you did not mention, Mm. an episode of a show, the episode named Homer, H-O-M-R, when Homer put a crayon in his nose. I didn't mention it because honestly, I knew you were going to. When Homer becomes genius, my favorite line from that episode is when Homer points to his chest and says, there's a crayon in my brain. And then he takes the crayon out because he realizes being smart. Sucks. Sucks. <laughs> or rather, he puts the crayon back in. Yeah, they took That's the crayon out they and take it made him smart. Yeah. yeah, he puts it back like, up in there. Yes, um, there's a Simpsons episode that parodies this by jamming a crayon into Homer's brain. Now, one thing that we haven't mentioned is how different the short story is from the novel. Like, novel is not just like a longer version of the short story, that there's just differences in the story. Well, part of that is I've never read the short story, and I didn't bother to for this. Well, I, so I reread the novel. <laughs> it's it just like weird differences. So in the short story, what's his name? Charlie. Charlie is a janitor at the lab. And so he's not like working at a bakery. It's like they're all kind of standing around a lab and they work on Algernon. And they're just kind of like, oh, you're right here. (laughs) You're right here. That guy looks pretty stupid. Let's see if we can make the janitor smarter. Oh, boy. And at the end, he, when he's regressing, he kind of just leaves that he doesn't want people to see him anymore. And in the short story, he only gets like an IQ up to like 110 or like 115. Like he doesn't become a super genius. He becomes like just above average. And then he crashes back down. Whereas in the novel, for some reason, they decided to make him like Mega Mind with an IQ of like 190. I think it was 185 was as high as he got up to. Well, he also starts, I know in the novel he starts lower because he, he starts at like 68. Okay. So uh, Numbers are meaningless. They, they, they just like hyper inflated in the novel for some reason. I don't know why. Probably to pad things out time-wise because... He's going to reach above average intelligence a lot quicker. And it's like, oh, man, I got to write like 200 more pages, dude. That's what I got. That's what you got. Unless you want to hear about the other works (laughs) that uh, were done by, oh, Danny Keys. Oh, Danny Keys, the pipes. Oh, Danny's the key keystone pipeline. Because he actually (laughs) did publish four more novels. We just don't know any of them. (laughs) Something called The Touch, which deals with the human tragedy connected with a radiation accident. Um, the Fifth Sally, the first novel to deal with multiple personality disorder, Until Death, a novel dealing with a double homicide in Florida and the issue of competency for execution. His last novel was actually published in 2009, so right before he died, The Asylum Prophecies. Oh, like five years before he bum, died. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> he also published a few uh, nonfiction books. Yeah, one of which was, here's how I wrote Flowers for Algernon. Yeah, one of them is that... <laughs> One is The Minds of Billy Milligan, which was a criminal thing, basically talking about people being acquitted because of competency issues. So he was just really into the idea of mental competency, huh? Oh, he had that psychology degree. Mm, fair enough. Got a psychology degree, worked as a creative writer the rest of his life, and taught creative writing the rest of his life. There you go. So I guess that brings us around to... Home again. The... <laughs> Home again, naturally. Hey, RJ. Hey, Jude. Don't let me down. I'm going to try. Flowers for Algernon. Yep. Good, bad, horrifically depressing. Well, so, I mean, I think it's good part of it being that it is evocative. It makes people emote. 
I think it does a good job of that. I think it does raise a number of issues. We didn't specifically talk about it, but I think it's there on the surface of the novel with how we dealt with intelligence then. I think it's different nowadays. You know, definitely the language has changed. I think perhaps maybe this novel helped that with how we deal with people with special needs and how we look at them and also kind of just consider people of different backgrounds and different strengths and abilities. Because that's part of what like fucks Charlie up so much is like people either are super uncomfortable and they can't deal with him now that he's you know like smart and stuff or with the scientists where they act like he was subhuman for all intents and purposes before they made him a super genius and yes it's, it's fucked up um it's like that idea kind of like in Gatsby right that Gatsby's no good because he was nouveau riche right instead of the old one so he, was, he, he, was, he didn't earn it the right he way. He was nouveau genius. <laughs> exactly. He didn't earn it the right way. It was given to him. Which, I mean, I like that idea, and I like how that plays out. And just seeing that trope again in a different kind of way. So. Good. Yeah, good. <laughs> so, Megan. RJ. Flowers for Algernon. 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 DiGiorno. Good. Bad. Deep dish. So, like, like, pretty much what you said, that, that it is. It's very emotionally evocative. I, I got a lot more out of it this time around than I did as a 13-year-old. And, you know, it's tough because I don't want to say things like, don't give this to 13-year-olds to read because that, that sounds like censorship. But I'm not saying because, like, oh, they, there's bad things in it. But, like, I didn't appreciate it for what it was when I read it. I barely even got what the hell was going on. And, um... But then again, that made me reread it now, and I got a lot more out of it this time. And, and I, I think, honestly, remembering back to when I read it in middle school, that to me, the tragic character is not Charlie, it's the mouse. It's the mouse. No, you're, you're right. It is, because the mouse dies, and that's sad. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> You know, I've already talked about how I, I think the framing device is very neat and I like how it works and, and just things like that and kind of what you brought up also. But I don't know how I feel about some of the stuff it's saying that, like, being smart sucks. That it's just a bunch of bullshit. That it doesn't matter if someone's a baker or a scientist. They can still act less like a person and more like the gross gooey liquid that drips out the bottom of a, a fully packed garbage bag. Like... I don't know what to do with the book. Like, I don't know what to take away from it apart from, like, this fucking sucks. People are terrible. Also, being smart made him kind of miserable a lot, but then going back to being not smart still sucked. I think part of that, though, is that we're you got to remember we're reading it from Charlie's point of view, and so maybe no matter what happened to him, it was just going to suck. That I don't think necessarily maybe the book is saying, oh, smart people suck, everybody sucks, it sucks to be smart, it sucks to be dumb, or anything in between. I think maybe just for Charlie, just the prejudice he faced all along the way, he was never going to win. That it was just never going to work out for him. But, but, that, then you, but, but then you get that idea that it's like, oh, you, so you never should have bothered in the first place. You should have stayed slow like God made you. Which I don't think is what Keyes is actually trying to say, but I feel like that comes across... But it's not that Charlie should have done anything different. It's the people around Charlie should have been different. Charlie's not the problem. The problem is with how everyone treats Charlie. Well, yeah. That it shouldn't matter if Charlie, you know, is smart or not. He should be treated like a human like being. A, like a human person and not a desk lamp. I mean, so I think it's more holding a mirror up outwards rather than inwards towards Charlie. And so yeah, that might be, that. I think maybe you're approaching it that way, that you're reading it. And you're seeing what Charlie's seeing. But you're projecting onto Charlie when really you're meant to project it onto what Charlie sees. That's that's fair because you are reading it in Charlie's point of view, and I'm I'm definitely that kind of reader where I'll, I'll I get wrapped up in like the narrator and stuff like that. So that's fair. But yeah, no, I mean ultimately good, good book. Glad to have re-encountered it and got something new from it that I totally didn't get as a, a kid, as an eighth grader. <laughs> and uh, that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. We were, we were just all over the map emotionally, uh, mentally, spiritually. If you like the show and all of the, the terrible, terrible things that we do for you, the beloved listener, we would super appreciate it if you just took 
those two minutes that it takes to subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. It takes, it, review is what takes two minutes, really. It takes like 10 seconds to just be like, boop, subscribe, boop, star, star number, whatever amount that you feel is just and correct and true in your soul. I'm get. I don't know where I'm going. You can follow us on Twitter at OnoLickClassPod. Uh, RJ just stopped tweeting for whatever reason. He is no longer gracing Twitter with his presence. But maybe if you DM him enough at RJ underscore Ono Lit Class, you, we, we can get him back on. No, I got burner accounts. Don't worry. You got to see who's adding <laughs> RJ <laughs> underscore Ono Lit Class. Oh, That's geez. RJ now. Great. You can like us on Facebook. You can join our Facebook group. Find me at Owen. we pretty much just talk about book memes and stuff all the time, and it's very good. People talk about stuff that they read when they were kids, and yeah, no, just them sick literary memes. Find me at Real Donald Trump. <laughs> I already mentioned Patreon. Uh, you can buy cool shirts and other such merchandise at our Tee Public store. Find me at Horsey Books. Which <laughs> uh, the link to is in the show notes, along with the link to our Patreon. We're on the uh, we're on the Brain Trust Network, along with shows like Life, Death, and Taxonomy. There might be Cupcakes, Play Comics, The Wallfly, and you should check all of them out because they're very good. You can listen to us anywhere, everywhere at onolitclass.com in that one weird cabinet in the kitchen of the house you were checking out because you were thinking about moving into it and you just can't open it and it seems kind of stuck and that weirds you out. Yeah, it gives you a strange vibe. But your partner's like, no, honey, it's great. This is going to be the house of our dreams. And then at night you hear weird noises coming from the cabinet. It's us. It, it, it's us. Please let us out. Fish for sale. <laughs> our next episode will be on June 21st. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. Leave some flowers on the grave of RJ the first. <laughs> I'm RJ too. We love you. Bye. Are you trying to play HQ and record the show at the same time? I'm not trying. I'm doing. I'm on Q3. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.